Welcome back to The Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner here at OpenView. If you've been following along this season, you know that we're here to figure out the new customer journey and what that means for SaaS. Today, we hear from Wes Bush, the founder of the Product-Led Institute. If you know anything about Wes, you know that he loves product-led growth just as much as I do. He's written a great book on product-led growth, and he's the man behind the Product-Led Summit, one of the tentpole events each year in the product-led community. Today's episode is a PLG bonanza, with a lot of our conversation focused on the importance of customer empathy and the centrality of onboarding in the new customer journey. All that and more on this episode of Built. So let's dive in with Wes Bush. Well, Wes, thanks so much for joining us here on the Build Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Likewise, thank you so much for having me here. And I know that uh, we can get into all things product-led growth and probably talk for the next few days about it, given uh, you and me, and it's our favorite topic. But (laughs) maybe as a starting point, I would love to hear how you first discovered product-led growth as a concept and why did it resonate with you so strongly? Yeah, so I guess I, I fell into the world of product before this whole concept of product growth even was around. And for me, it was whenever I was working at a company called Vidyard, we were a very like traditional sales-led company. And we were doing the traditional playbook where you create content, you put up lead forms and have people fill out information to get access to that content. You send those people emails. And then your whole goal is like, let's get these people on demo requests and eventually turn them into paying customers. And so that was what I was exposed to in that traditional like sales-led company. But it wasn't until we actually launched a premium product called Viewed It at that time, which got to over 100,000 users very quickly, where I started to look at the product as something completely different. Because up until that point, the product was just something we sold. Whereas with this freemium product, it was actually a customer acquisition model for us. People would start going into the product. If they liked it, they would start upgrading. And so it really changed the way that I saw a product. And so I do think that what really got me excited about this whole notion of product-led growth is it's a growth engine for your business. And I think the quicker you realize that, uh, the faster you're able to adapt as a business in this landscape and really thrive. And why do you think that now is a great time to be product-led? Yeah, and so right now is a really interesting time, especially with the, the pandemic that's going on. And businesses right now, a lot of them are still hurting as a result of this. And so whenever you're in a situation like that, What's often going through people's heads before they make a purchase is they're trying to de-risk it. They're really trying to validate, like, is this 100% going to be an incredible fit for my business? And so one of the great things and advantages you have as a product-led business is that people are able to try before they buy. They can go into your product, see if it's an absolutely perfect fit for them, and if it is then that decision to buy it becomes a lot easier for them. And so it's really as simple as that. Whenever you try before you buy, the whole buying experience becomes a lot easier for people to make that decision and ultimately pull the trigger. Yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense. It's kind of one of those things that I see, obviously the product-led wave had been going prior to COVID and the idea of 
orienting your customer journey to start with self-service rather than to start with a sales conversation, that was already a trend, right? Obviously, Slack had been doing it and done very well in Zoom and Datadog and Calendly and many others. So it was already a trend. But now with COVID, as you mentioned, it kind of it catalyzes and precipitates that being one of the best, if not the best, go-to-market model right now. Because you know, compare that to the old school way of having enterprise field sales and go through a long sales cycle, go through procurement and all those kinds of things. And that obviously has some headwinds, both because you can't get on planes, go to events and do field oriented things. And then two, that also is typically correlated with a really high price point. And those budgets might have some pressure right now. And then we go all the way to what you were saying, which is self-serve, which is I can go and find a product 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I can self-serve. I don't have to talk to a salesperson. I don't have to go into somebody's office. I can just start using it. I can just get value out of it. And there's obviously a high correlation between product-led and self-serve and freemium or free trials. So I can also do all of that for free. And so not only was that already a growing wave and that's how people want to buy, but that is also the most practical reason really, or the most practical way uh, to go to market right now um, if you want to resonate with people, just given the disruption that we've experienced. So it's kind of this interesting trend that was already going and it's been catalyzed or sort of accelerated due to the pandemic effect that you had mentioned. Yeah, and I'm so happy you mentioned that too, because it, it's not like that whole concept of like try before you buy was anything new before the pandemic. I think it's just adding gasoline to the fire of product-led companies and everyone's thinking like, hey, this this actually makes a lot more sense even in this situation than before to have this good market strategy. Yeah, it's kind of very parallel to remote work and distributed work. That was obviously a trend before and it was growing in popularity and then that's been catalyzed. And so it's interesting to see how some of these events can kind of bring about changes and trends um, that were sort of slower before and they kind of become overnight you know, successes, so to speak. So, so definitely interesting. Now that leads me to, because it's a hot topic and because it's a good time to be moving towards product-led, if somebody's trying to do it for the first time, either they're a first-time founder starting a new company and want to sort of take this approach, or they're an existing company who wants to sort of maybe add a product-led motion into their existing mix, what's the right way to tackle that? Do you have a framework that you think about in terms of the how-to on product-led growth? Yeah, so for any founder or company that's thinking like, you know, should we even go down this direction? I always recommend thinking of, I put together this framework called the moat framework. And so it's really like four key distinctions that you need to really consider to understand like, is this the right fit for your business in the first place? And so the first part of it is like, what is your market strategy? Are you trying to have like a dominant play? Maybe something like Netflix or Spotify would be a perfect example. They get the job done better than everyone else in their market and they charge less. That's a really hard play to do as a business. And oftentimes, if you're doing that strategy, you have to have really low customer acquisition costs. So maybe you're using a free trial, freemium model, whereas if you have a different market strategy, like a differentiated strategy, you're going to get the job done better than everyone else, but you can charge more. And oftentimes, when you're deploying a differentiated strategy, your product can be more complex. And that might mean, hey, you want to have that sales edge strategy because when people first sign up for your product, they don't know what to do. It's so confusing for them. And so a lot of times differentiated strategies for businesses, it might actually be better to, to stay sales led or at least rehaul your user experience to at least try the product that approach. But then the last one's disruptive. 
So if you're going to be disruptive, if you think of products like Canva or even Google Docs, they typically deploy a freemium approach and they're trying to capture overserved customers where they might not get the job done better than the current entrant to the person dominating that industry, but they're charging a lot less. And so people are willing to switch to that particular model over the other. And so that's where I, I would start, like identify your market strategy. The next piece, which you should always be evaluating, is what is your ocean condition? And so if you're in a blue ocean, for instance, where it's uncontested market space, it's something new, you're typically going to have a very big education period for any of your buyers. And so that means sometimes a sales-led approach will work best in that particular environment. But eventually, all markets become red oceans. And so in a red ocean, the only go-to-market strategy that makes sense in the long run is a product-led go-to-market strategy. And part of that reason is because you can have the lowest customer acquisition costs. And in the tech space, it is deflationary. If you want like a ton of great examples on why tech is deflationary in nature, I highly recommend reading The Price of Tomorrow. Fascinating read, goes through so many examples of just why tech is becoming less and less expensive. And ProfitWell even did a study on this. They found that over the last five years, the customer willingness to pay has gone down by 30%. So it's like, if you're in a red ocean, one of the best ways to lower your customer acquisition costs is the product-led go-to-market strategy. But that's the, the second piece of the moat framework. The third is the audience. So how are you targeting people? Is it top-down? Is it bottom-up? And that has a, a pretty big factor on how you really approach the way you sell. So if you're targeting buyers, for instance, you, you usually want to have a top-down marketing strategy. And in that particular case, well... That's, it's usually sales-led companies. That's how they're told, go after that decision maker. Whereas if you're going to be focusing on building a product-led go-to-market strategy, you want to go bottoms up, target the end user, and really help that user see value. And so if you're already targeting users, typically that product-led go-to-market strategy is a good option for you. And then the last piece of the moat framework is understanding your time to value. Now, if you have a really long time to value, it's going to be very hard for you to make the product-led go-to-market strategy work. But if it's quick, well, you have a lot more options, whether it's a free trial or a freemium model. And so when you look at each of these pieces of the Moat framework together, you can at least understand a little bit easier, okay, what will work best for our business? Is it maybe a free trial, a freemium model, hybrid, or is it potentially just staying as a, a sales-led company? And so I have 10 questions that I usually go through with people. If you wanted to go through it, there's a free quiz at productledquiz.com. If you just want to go through and identify what is the, the product-led model that might work best for you. And so that quiz will kind of tell you, maybe you should take a pure product-led self-service approach, or maybe you should take a different approach. Is that kind of what it's, it's aimed at? Yep, absolutely. That's great. Now, I think that that is a really helpful sort of starting point, because uh, I think a lot of folks, they can make a quick shortcut in their minds, which is, all right, I'm starting a, a SaaS company. Um, I like Slack. I want to do it like Slack. 
and that might be the right answer, but I think taking a step back and saying, okay, well, Slack's awesome, but like, is the Slack model appropriate for your business? And having that, thinking about the market, thinking about the competitive landscape, thinking about who you're targeting and who that persona is through your audience lens that you mentioned. And then is it a complex product that takes a long time to get value or is it a quick, sort of a quick hit, quick win that you can kind of prove that value and that that will tell you which way you should take the approach. And um, it, it helps to take some of the the personal preference out of it um, of I like Slack or I like sales or whatever it is. And it starts to actually think about it from a first principle standpoint, like what's actually appropriate for my end market. Absolutely. Maybe let's talk a little bit about audience. So you mentioned audience and going, you know, top down to a buyer versus bottom up to an end user. What are those markets where, you know, you might see one versus the other? And what do you think the, the key trends are in this persona element? Yeah, so it's really interesting to look into the difference between like buyers and users whenever you're targeting them, because sometimes the buyer and the user can be the same person. So it can be a little confusing in that regard. But oftentimes when you're looking at more expensive purchases, there usually is a difference between that ultimate decision maker. Maybe that's the the VP of the company and the person who's going to be using it day in, day out. And so with a lot of product-led companies, you're typically seeing the users finding the products that they want to use, and then it bubbles up to the managers eventually whenever they want to purchase it. So I do think that the audience is one of the key areas you need to look at because if you have, let's say, a product-led model and you're using a top-down selling strategy, you're really just targeting the buyers, decision makers, that person might not actually be that technical or able to get up to speed in that particular product. And so whenever that's the case, there's a mix match. It's just not really going to work that well for that person to really adopt that product on their own. And so that's one thing you really have to consider is are you targeting the right person, whether that's the buyer or the user, and who is ultimately going to get up to speed the fastest in this product? Now, how do you think that evolves over time? Do you think that over time, more and more end users buy or pick software? Or do you think that it's always going to be sort of a split between the two? I do feel like there's always going to be a spot for sales-led companies in some cases. For instance, if you look at the history of a lot of sales-led companies, you will typically find that a lot of the ones that are still around, there's a big reason why. It's, It's because many departments have to rely on this particular piece of software. There is merit to having one solution versus, let's say, five or six different solutions to solve the same problem in different departments. And so that is one of the cases. But I do have that hunch that as the market evolves, the users are going to be the ones deciding the majority of the products. It's just going to naturally bubble up to management to make those big decisions of which software we are going to use as an entire organization. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people are making decisions based on the product experience. The product experience has become a part of the buying experience. And if you don't have a good product experience, users aren't going to pick you. And if you are that decision maker and you're making your people use products they don't like, that is going to put them in tricky situations where maybe they just don't use that software. They're, they're using their other alternative that is free or has some other option for them to use. And so I do agree with you. Like it is headed towards that way where users are now deciding what is the business going to be using at the end of the day. Yeah, I I think that's a really interesting point to make because 
even if you are sales-led and even if you think that your category has historically always made sense to be sales-led or maybe your own internal culture has kind of been wired that way, you could think, well, you know, this whole product-led thing is, it just doesn't apply to me. But it does apply to you because if all of your competitors are taking a product-led approach and going to the end users, it kind of doesn't matter sometimes if you've gotten that executive champion to sign a contract because the users are liable to revolt if they hate the software, right? If you bought an old school web conferencing system or video conferencing system that's extremely antiquated and clunky, I bet it's only a matter of time before somebody gets on Google Meet or on Zoom or on whatever their favorite, more modern solution is that has a freemium approach, right? And so you need to be mindful of that fact and understand that, you know, if you could be basically outflanked by somebody going directly to your end users and around doing an end run around the, the executive champion, that's a real threat to folks. And so being mindful of that and adapting, and maybe you need to add in a product-led motion or add in more defensive mechanisms around that kind of competitive angle is super important to keep in mind. Now, one question for you, Wes. Um, so if somebody goes through the moat framework and determines, yep, product-led is the way for me, where do they begin? How do they do it right? And how do they do it well? Great question. And so one of the things I am fascinated about whenever it comes to product-led companies is really this one word called time to value. Because you could have the best product in your market, but if you can't actually help someone experience the value of that product quickly, you've lost them. Right now, there is 40 to 60% of users who sign up for your product We'll use it once and never come back. And so the 80-20 of product-led growth really comes down to how can we get people to experience the value of the product fast? And so one of the frameworks I developed is called the Bowling Alley Framework. And its whole focus is how do you really accelerate the time to value in any product? And so there's three components to it. But the first one is essentially, let's build your, your straight line onboarding experience. So whenever you think of bowling, for instance, you want to roll that ball down the straight line in the middle because your chances of knocking down the most pins and striking out skyrockets whenever you do that. So the same thing applies in your product. You need to understand, okay, what are the minimum number of steps it takes for someone to actually see value in your product? Now, this can be really simple. It could be as easy as signing up for your own product, going through and just noting down every single step that it takes for you to go from sign up to experiencing the value of the product. And when you have all those steps outlined, the next thing you can really do is just ask yourself, you know what, what steps here can be eliminated? That's step one. <laughs> and you'll typically find whenever I do this experiment, anywhere from 10 to 30% of your steps could just be eliminated in the first place. And then the second question you need to ask yourself is, what steps can we delay? So you mentioned Slack a couple of times, and one of the things I, I think they do really incredible is at the beginning of their onboarding journey, they're not really overwhelming you with too much. They just want to get you into the software, invite your coworkers, and start a conversation. That's the main focus. But whenever you, let's say, share a Google Drive link, well, <laughs> you get this little pop-up that says, would you like to integrate Google Drive? And so it's contextual onboarding based on what you're doing in the product and what you're interested in. And so a lot of companies make the mistake of treating onboarding like this one trick pony, like you sign up, great, 
Here's everything our product does and more. We're all excited to show you everything we've done. But the problem with that is a lot of times it just overwhelms users. There's so much that they could do, but they came to your product for a reason. They had a problem and you're either helping them solve that problem or you're not. You're getting stuff that's getting in the way with them. And so when you're thinking about what steps can we delay, it's oftentimes advanced steps. Maybe it's something that we should still onboard this user on, but maybe it's the second, third, fourth time, or maybe when they head over to that part of the product, we onboard them based on that. And so that's the second question, what steps can we delay? The third is really the mission critical steps. What are those steps? So if you think of Google Analytics, the product itself isn't useful unless you do one step. And that is actually uploading the script to your website so that Google Analytics can now understand who's using your products and give you good insights on that. So it's really straightforward, but when you use those three questions together, first you, you cut the fat with eliminating the steps that you can just completely eliminate. Then when you delay the steps that are a little bit more advanced and just have those mission critical steps, that's your straight line. You can just cut out a lot of those steps and really figure out how can we get someone to value much quicker. And so when you have that straight line, you can usually reduce your time to value by 30 to 40% just by that one exercise. But to make it even more effective, you need to think about bowling once again, which is bumpers. So bowling actually had this really big problem with short-term retention. They had a lot of people trying out bowling, but they didn't have a lot of people coming back. And so when they, they did a bunch of research to figure out, you know, why are people not coming back to our product, or not our product, but our game, they were fascinated to hear that, hey, a lot of people just didn't have a good first experience. And when you think about it, bowling at one point, they didn't have any bumpers. And so people would roll the ball, it'd go in the gutter. And that's not too fun, especially if you're maybe playing with someone who's played multiple times, they're getting all the pins down and you're left getting it in the gutter. And so that when they developed bumpers, they realized, wait a minute, there's a lot more people that can play this game, enjoy it. The whole total addressable market has grown for bowling. And it was one of their big successes. Now, when it comes to your product, the same thing applies. What we're really expecting people is to sign up for our product and without usually much onboarding or any at all, strike out and experience the value of the product. Now, that's a tall order for anyone. And so what we really need to do is create product bumpers. How can we guide people through our product? So maybe that's in the form of a product tour. Maybe it's an onboarding tooltip. Maybe it's just good user experience and user interaction design to really guide people easily through what they need to do once they're in the product. And so that is really powerful. Those two elements, you have your straight line, which is the absolute minimum number of steps it takes for somebody to experience the value of the product. And then you tack on a product bumper that guides people through each of those steps. That alone does a massive job to improve your time to value. But the last component of the Bowling Alley framework is really your conversational bumper. And this is understanding that people are, even if they start off using your product with the best intentions, they're gonna get stuck somewhere. But how can we bring them back based on what they do, 
and more importantly, what they don't do. So if let's say someone doesn't upload that script to Google Analytics, are we notifying them? Are we providing them that script in that email that they could just forward to a developer on their team? Are we making it really easy for them to continue their journey on that straight line operating experience? And so when you have all three of those components working together, that straight line operating experience and the conversational and product bumper working together, you're going to find that you can quickly get people from signing up to your product to experiencing the value of your product very quickly. And what I find is once people get to that point of that desired outcome, they experience the value of your product and the whole reason why they signed up for your product in the first place, that is the moment when your product has actually sold itself and people are able to experience the value of your product, they get the value proposition at that particular point. So I hope that did a, a good enough job of explaining how you could really use the Bowling Alley framework to really take your product-led company to the next level. Yeah, it's, it's a sophisticated way to think about um, a common line that many people have, myself included, which is remove the friction from the funnel which the immediate next question is, okay, how? <laughs> Where do I start? What does friction look like? And so thinking about this idea of steps to eliminate, steps to delay, steps that are mission critical, um, really kind of from like an, uh, a first principle standpoint, just get it all out on the table and figure out like what should stay and what should go. Super helpful way to think about it. It does lead me to one question, which is if I think about time to value, which is what you oriented this around, the definition of value, right? Um, it, I kind of think about it as that aha moment. It's the initial sort of experience of value. And within the product-led community, many people will then quantify, if you will, or specify that that aha moment has a North Star metric around it or a golden metric. Let's get everybody to this North Star metric. Let's measure it and all those kinds of things, which makes a ton of sense. But the challenge is, what is my North Star metric? What is that aha moment? What is that experience of value that you're trying to get people to? So how do you guide people on identifying that? Yeah, so first off, that, whether you call it a strike, aha moment, wow moments, a moment of value, moment of truth, like there's so many names for this. I think it's kind of funny. But I do find the, the most important part here is really just identifying like what makes people come back. If you can ask people, like, what was that one thing that really made you want to come back the second time to our product? And it really is going to be so specific on your product. So I'm not sure it's going to be too valuable in my explanation, but it's really just what is at the core of the value you provide for your product? And the more important part here is, are you measuring it? Most companies, they have a pretty good handle on, okay, when people do this in our product, it means there's some sort of value exchange on the user side. But if you're not measuring it, it's going to be really hard for every team in your business to really start putting on their product-led hat and understand how to help these users. I'll give you an example. So whenever companies start using product qualified leads, which is essentially managing or looking at what people are doing in your product and if they're getting value, so your marketing team could look at that and say, hey, you know, these campaigns that we've been using, they actually drive users that are experiencing the value of the product. That's great. Let's, let's do more of that campaign. Now your sales team can look at that product qualified lead metric and now say, 
wait a minute, okay, this person had just experienced the value of the product. They are ready. They understand the value proposition of this product. Now's actually a great time to reach out because they might have questions about how to really get this product into the rest of the organization. And I'm going to help them do that. So having that metric, I would almost argue is, is even more important than really just having something where it's like, okay, let's, let's take a guess at what we are going to drive towards for what is that aha moment? Just understanding, okay, what is our best guess at success, at least initially? And then you can put those metrics in place to really measure, okay, are people getting towards that point of the product where they understand the value? So with that orientation of identifying the point of value or the aha moment, and then trying to decrease the time to value, who owns that? You know, does marketing own that because marketing historically is owned top of funnel? Does product own that because it ultimately is the product and the funnel has become the product? Or, you know, does the, the, the team of a growth team, which a lot of people sort of have in a product-led model, is that who owns it? Like, what's the organizational setup or team structure that is important to, to keep in mind if you're going to execute this bowling alley framework successfully? Yeah. So one of the, the benefits of being a consultant is you get to work with a bunch of different companies across a bunch of different sizes. So whether it's working with companies from like 20K in earning revenue to over $2 billion public companies. What you typically see is when it comes to onboarding, at least when you're making that transition from sales-led to product-led, nobody owns it. Maybe it's R&D. They're, they're thinking about, hey, what are some ways we could really innovate this company? But in the long run, what I have seen again and again is usually it does become that product team that has to look at, okay, are we just building a product or are we building a product that people are consistently and actively engaging with? And that metric I was mentioning earlier, like product qualified leads, the best product teams that I know to this day all use that metric to really have that understanding of, okay, are people, whenever they get into the product experience, really getting value from this product? And then they can really innovate based on maybe it's innovating new features after the second time they log in based on that. But yes, that is the, the main kind of department I see it live in most cases. But what about yourself? What have you seen? I see a variety of things. That's the interesting factor is that a lot of people just have different ways to approach it. And it seems to be a little bit cultural depending on the organization. I've seen some where marketing owns the top of the funnel, but all the way through to sign up, or in some cases, all the way through to conversion. Now that marketing team probably has a little bit more of a wiring or an orientation towards you know growth marketing uh, which is obviously a new buzzword these days versus like historically just pure content marketing or pure demand generation. So marketing could own it. As you mentioned, products could definitely own it because this is ultimately the product and you're getting people into the product and then it's all about the product experience and hitting certain KPIs or you know different milestones on the journey within the product. So products could certainly own it. Those are the the, the two obvious or common places. Now, there's the middle zone of where there's overlap, and that's obviously where a lot of times the idea of a growth team comes into play. Now, to me, a growth team, it's this fancy term that is a little bit nebulous. It means something different to everybody, but really it's just another team within your product organization. It's another squad. So instead of working on feature X, Y, or Z, the growth team or the growth squad is focused on the actual beginning stages of the customer journey. And a growth team can oftentimes own those more you know, uh, growth-oriented KPIs, 
whereas the core product team can own things like feature adoption, CSAT, NPS, and more classic sort of product terms. But that being said, it's, it kind of is a case by case, you know, depending on which company you to talk to, they might orient differently or sort of have different team ownership or even different names for what those organizations are. Absolutely. And yeah, <laughs> I almost wish there was that one department where it's like, okay, it's the, the onboarding department that like manages this gap, but I, I'm with you. It is all over the place. So one thing to further unpack is the, the last bumper that you identified, which was the conversational bumper. Now that starts to be the opportunity or the place where, you know, you might start to get some human involvement in a self-service funnel. So talk to me about that. What do you see as being the way in which you bring in humans, whether they're support or success or sales or what have you into this self-serve automated funnel? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the places I see the most interaction between humans coming into this self-serve onboarding experience and the users experiencing that is when they become a PQL or they've experienced the desired outcome in the product. And that's when your sales team can actually make the most impact. Even when I was talking with the folks at Drift, like they, in the early days, whenever someone became a product qualified lead and had 100 conversations on their website, when their sales team reached out to those people, at that stage, when they had 100 conversations, they were actually closing them around 20 to 30%, which is absolutely incredible when you think of like what does a, a typical marketing qualified lead close at? Like 98% of them just don't close. So a product qualified lead is very powerful if you know when to reach out. And so that's really the, the power moment I look for. But it also begs the question too, does it make sense in the first place to have someone from sales reach out? And there's really three main ways to think about how you can serve your users. There's the no touch way. Let's say you have a really low lifetime value. Your product is $9 a month or something like that. It actually <laughs> wouldn't make much sense for you to have someone in sales reach out because, well, that salesperson might not want that commission because it's not actually worth that much. And so that's, that's one way. No touch, there is that option. Low touch, you will typically see this when there's a little bit of a higher lifetime value and it's worth it for that person to reach out. And then there's high touch, which is like very intensive hand holding. Maybe there's some customer onboarding. Typically that's more sales led companies in the first place where the customer acquisition cost is very high. And so there's really that option. And that's, I think the key piece to recognize it doesn't have to be someone from sales reach out. It could still be support. If there is questions, I know in a lot of product-led companies I'm talking to, there is a huge role of support in really just kind of taking on the, the sales hat, just serving people at the end of the day. And as a result, they are turning into those paying customers very quickly. A lot of times I think about it as whose goals are you trying to solve or whose priorities are you addressing? And there's two constituents you could address, your own as the vendor or the customer's. Now, most people will have this language of being customer-focused and customer-centric, but when they actually come to what do I do day-to-day -day, and how do I prioritize my time and what am I solving for, it's their own priorities, right? I'm a sales rep. I need to hit my quota. These are the leads in my funnel, and these are the ones that are worth the most dollars, so these are the ones that are getting a call, and then I'm going to hound incessantly, which can make sense and it can work, but if you do that in a product-led model, as you're saying you might artificially see that first end user from a really large enterprise account and say, you see dollars, right? But that's not really putting yourselves in the customer's shoes. 
that's solving for your goals. And if you instead flip it around and have a little bit of customer or user empathy and say, okay, well, where are they in their journey? And who is this persona? Is this even the right person to reach out to? Have they even gotten to that moment of value? And putting yourselves in their shoes and then reaching out at the right time based off of where they are on their journey, rather than the right time for how am I going to hit my quota this month or this quarter is the right way to kind of reorient. Yeah, I'm so happy you mentioned that too, because like in a lot of freemium models, the timeline is on the user. It's not on the company. Obviously, we would want people to close like the first day if we had our wish as a company, but it's like, well, let's align the timeline with the user. They might close month three, month four, month six, depends on what their situation is. So, so happy you mentioned that because it's such an important part of even just why product-led businesses work really well. Yeah, and you can even think about yourself as a user adopting popular product-led products, and you can say, well, what did they do to me? And then you can emulate that behavior a little bit. You pointed to Slack, and you, you identified that you know, when somebody first comes into Slack, the orientation is not, I'm going to show you everything that Slack can do, and let me try to sell you something. Let's get you on the enterprise grid and all those kinds of things. It's just, no, create your team and get that first team member on there with you and start sending messages, start communicating. And then at natural points later on in the journey, as you mentioned, when you bring in a Google Drive link or something like that, it will suggest things and sort of reveal more aspects of the product to you. And also some of those things are, they're also asking for the sale, right? You have hit your message limit. If you want to see back further than this, you've hit your integration limit. If you want more integrations than this, then those are conversion moments, but you're doing it at the right point of the customer's journey. And you're not artificially trying to jam it in in order to, you know, just get some sales for that month or quarter. Yeah, and I almost take it a, a step back too. Whenever thinking about should we use someone in sales or not, the question I'd ask is, is this person adding value to this whole process or adding friction? If you are answering that and you say, hey, I think this person's adding friction. For instance, if you have a freemium product, but you can't actually buy it without someone talking to someone in sales, that case is usually you're adding a lot of friction to the whole process. Whereas if it's adding value, maybe it's just, okay, you are at the point where maybe the first person who championed it, they want to roll this out to the rest of the team. How are you going to help that person navigate this and expand Slack to the rest of the team? So that case, sales actually makes a lot of sense. They're, they're adding value to this whole process. Maybe they're going to help that champion navigate the buying process in that enterprise. So if you can answer, is actually adding value to the process? Absolutely. Like have that sales rep. But if it's just adding friction, sometimes don't bother. It is just adding more friction in that particular instance. So there's always that fine balance between adding value and adding friction. I think we can all agree. Friction's bad. Friction needs to be removed. <laughs> and we are all anti-friction for sure. Absolutely. Well, in closing, I would love for our listeners to hear a little bit more about what you have going on at the Product Led Institute. What should they watch out for this upcoming summer? Yes. Yeah, so on July 27th, we are having the fifth Product Led Summit. And so if you want to kind of go behind the scenes of some of the fastest growing product led companies and just seeing how those practitioners are actually building that company, then I'd suggest checking out. You can go to productledsummit.com and tune in to some of the talks. They're, they're all free and it'll be a great opportunity just to see how some of these companies are actually building these companies. Awesome. And then you guys have a podcast now and a bunch of content you're putting out as well that folks could follow? Yeah, absolutely. Like, links to the podcast and everything. You find it all at productled.com. 
Well, Wes, thanks so much for joining us here on the Build Podcast. And it's awesome to partner with you on the product-led movement and then being a participants with you in the product-led community. Absolutely. This has been a blast, Blake. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you liked what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe for new episodes that drop each week. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily product-led growth content and let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we figure out the new customer journey and what comes next in product-led growth. One thing is for sure, all of us in the product-led community are in this together. Take care everyone, and I'll see you next week here on Build.